0: Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today's episode is focusing on a new exhibition about Rutherglen Ladies FC, a trailblazing women's football team from the 1920s and 1930s that paved the way for today's professional stars. And joining me in the show is my favourite podcast guest. It's sports historian, Dr Fiona Skillen. Fiona, great to have you back with us.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: And we're also joined by Richard McBrearty, the curator of the Scottish Football Museum at Hampden. Richard, great to welcome you onto the podcast.
2: Hi, Greg, great to be
0: here as well. Now, Fiona, I think it's important to start by looking at Rutherland ladies themselves. For anyone listening who might not have heard of them, who were they?
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't blame you if you haven't heard of them, because I hadn't heard of them until about a year ago. So and I'm a sports historian. So, you know, if anyone knows, I should know. Um, So Rutherglen ladies really were, you know, the the trailblazers of modern football in Scotland. They played during the interwar period, but what was really significant is they played at a time when uh, women's football was not really supported. It was actively discouraged and they really broke down a lot of barriers. And I think the other reason that they're significant is because until we kind of rediscovered this story, um, there was a kind of general belief that women just didn't really play football after the First World War. And so what we're trying to do with our exhibition and with the research more generally is rewrite the history books of the history of women's football in Scotland.
2: Were you the same, Richard? Were you familiar with brothers and ladies and their story? No, I completely agree with what Fiona said there. I'll I'll go back a bit earlier. I I was brought into the museum back in 1999, just as we were preparing to to kind of launch the new museum at Hampden Park and the new National Stadium after the rebuild. And um, we two members of staff out of a research team, probably of six or seven members of staff, just looking at women's football because there was nothing out there. There were no books. It wasn't really a subject within academia either at the time. Um, we were just starting to kind of maybe look into it. And for the best part of a year, my two colleagues really struggled to get, you know, a lot of information and did an incredible job to to get content for the museums. So the story of Oregon was, was completely unknown to us as well. And, you know, it was a huge surprise and a great surprise to hear Fiona come forward and, and announce, you know, the, the, the research that she'd discovered. Hey,
0: talk, let's talk about that research then, Fiona. Tell us what you found when you started looking into them.
1: So it came about really, I, I should say, first of all, because of a colleague, Steve Bolton, whose grandmother played for the legendary Dick Cares Ladies who played down south. And he's been doing a lot of research into that team to find out about his granny's past. And he came across a match that was played against this team Rotherglen Ladies in Scotland. And he contacted me to see if I knew anything about it, which I didn't. So we both went off on our merry way and did a bit of research and discovered this absolutely fascinating story that really was only known to those who either had some family connection, sometimes not even, um, as we'll talk about shortly, but also within the local community. So the granddaughter of the manager, E. H. Kelly, so Dorothy Honours, she had kept that story alive, that flame burning within the local community. But other than that, the story was not really well known. And what we uncovered very quickly from looking at predominantly digitised newspapers from the interwar period was that this team was really quite phenomenal. They were playing regularly. They were playing across Scotland. They were playing a variety of teams. So sometimes women's teams, although often there weren't many that they could play against, often men's teams, sometimes men's teams that were handicapped in some way. So we've got great pictures of the men's teams with their hands tied behind their backs or blindfolded or sometimes dressed up. So there's a great one of Charlie Chaplin uh, in goals and playing against the team. So they played all over the place. But what is really significant is not only did they tour around Scotland many, many times and play in all sorts of areas of Scotland, they also toured to Ireland twice and they toured to England, which again, for the period when we're thinking about the complexities of travel in that time, the cost involved, the time involved. And these were working class women who had jobs, who were fitting their football around that. That really was something quite phenomenal. And, and one of the main reasons that we felt this story really has to be celebrated and has to be you know better known.
0: It's remarkable just listening to you talk about them, that they, these women really were trailblazers. Why then was their story forgotten?
1: So I think it's to do with the culture of the time. So in 1921, there was a ban introduced in England by the FAA, which effectively made it very difficult for women's football to continue. So to give a little bit of context, during the First World War, women's football really kind of took off in a massive way that it had never done before. And there were lots and lots of teams popping up all over the country, including in Scotland. We had quite a thriving women's football network at that time. Fast forward to the end of the war and the FA are starting to get a bit concerned about the numbers of women playing, that they're not stopping, now the war has stopped and they're no longer in their factory jobs and so forth. And so they bring in this ban, which essentially says that women can no longer play matches on any fields that are, are members of the association, so any kind of pitches, and that anybody, any male member who is affiliated to the association can't encourage the women's games can't referee so again it loses legitimacy and they can't kick off and so forth they can't help sponsor and so on so it really undermines the growth and development of women's game the women's game in scotland it's not quite as straightforward as that we don't have a formal ban being instituted by the sfa however to all intents and purposes there is an informal ban in place because they are less than supportive of the women's game, and that's something that began in the victorian period when women first started playing publicly Um, It kind of went into abeyance during the First World War, and then it comes back with a vengeance after after the First World War ends. And so the women's game really is undermined. And any time that an organisation comes to the SFA and says, we're thinking of holding a women's match, even though they're playing for charity, the SFA always say, no, we don't condone this, you can't do this. And so it really does undermine where they can play, who can come and see them the legitimacy of their participation and so that's hugely problematic for the growth and development of the game. So for this women's team, this little women's team from this small part of Glasgow to have kind of sprung up and had the sustained success that they did is really quite remarkable.
0: Let's talk about the exhibition itself that's, that's taking place at the Scottish
2: Football Museum. Richard, can you tell me what kind of things are going to be on display? What I'm really excited about is that um, it's not just going to be at Hampden Park first of all, it'll be with us for six months and, you know, uh, it will give you a snapshot of really a, a, a fantastic story, as, as Fiona's kind of perfectly explained, you know, a, a real pioneering, trailblazing story, a really uplifting story. And we're talking about a period of the, you know, institutional discrimination. There's no other way. kind of paint it. um, uh, It was the kind of darkest of times for women's football and yet you have this powerful kind of message pushing through and so so from that point of view it'll be an uplifting exhibition. It's vibrant, it's colourful, there's a lot to see when you look at it but it's also going to travel and it's a wee job that myself and Fiona are going to have in the next couple of weeks as as we start to then look at other venues you know to to ensure that as wide an audience as possible can go and see it because it's absolutely inspirational as a story. So we know about Rutherglen Ladies' success and what about their, their decline and fall, what
0: happened to the team?
1: So essentially when we get into the 1930s, the team is getting older. So I, I should say when, when the team first emerges in 1921, J.H. Kelly, the manager, he's quite the entrepreneur. He goes around and he hoovers up the best players from the, the First World War teams, the factory teams that are in existence. So we have people like Chrissy Stevenson, Maggie Grosier, who played in other places, you know, May Watson, they're playing for other teams like Howden Beef and so forth, and they they then become part of Rutherglen. And he, um, I don't quite know how he manages it, because some of them are like sort of 12, 13. They must make promises to their parents. We know certainly when they come to play for the team, they come and stay in his family home and his, his tenement flat, and they stay overnight before the matches, and they're very well looked after. So they become part of that kind of Rutherglem family. So what happens is the team... Is very very young and 21 and as we go through into the 30s they're maturing and obviously they then start to get boyfriends and get married off and start their families and so by the time we get to 31 32 we're now looking at new players coming into the team and they're really not quite as good he's not handpicked them in the same way from other teams they're not going to prove their their skills and so the team kind of goes into decline and at the same time we're seeing Edinburgh, they're on the rise, and so that team kind of overtakes, and they become the kind of dominant team in the late 30s, but the kind of, the the team limps on through the 30s, and really the Second World War breaking out is kind of the death nail for the Rutherglen ladies, unfortunately.
0: It sounds like the sort of team that might do well, if it was Revive, for instance, I know that particularly in the the men's game, for instance, to borrow an example from that, Third Lanark, for instance, the team that, that, that disappeared. There might be the opportunity to revive them richard you think there might be the opportunity to do something like that with other than
2: ladies it's such an inspirational story that, you know, I think will actually resonate beyond even Roliglin itself. Um, any kind of, any girl wants to take a look at playing football, you know, Fiona had mentioned earlier on, you know, this this thought that, that football, women's football is maybe only 20, 30 years old. You know, actually football in Scotland is, is approaching 400 years old. You know, it was playing Castiers back in 1628. So from the point of view of the, the importance of the message of Rutherglen Ladies Football Club and 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 fighting against discrimination, being one of the best teams in Scotland. In fact, the best team in Scotland during the nineteen twenties and taking on the best in England during that period, and going to Ireland, when everything was stacked against them, it's like a, a far wider message. But uh, there is a Rugland team already in existence, and, and they will be, I think, really amazed by their predecessors. And I think, you know, you might start to see the, the you know, as good a team as they are already, you might start to see some of the performances even elevating to, to new levels with them as well, because the, it's just an inspirational story all round.
0: Excellent. I hope to see them competing in the SWPL at some point soon then. Fiona, earlier on, you described this research as rewriting the history books and women's football. I mean, that's quite a bold statement. Do you really believe this is really rewriting history books?
1: Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, as I say, as I said at the start, you know, I, I felt when we began this research that this was an interesting story that, that would be exciting to explore. And then subsequently having conversations with Richard and his colleagues at the museum and realising that actually it wasn't just me that didn't know about this, there were lots of people, experts, who didn't know about this. It really is very much a case of, we are rewriting the history books with this story and with the stories of the teams that they were playing as well. So it is a wonderful opportunity, I think, to, to not only publicize these women and the team themselves, but just to kind of reflect, you know, particularly at the moment, it's the 100th anniversary of that FE ban that I mentioned. Mm-hmm on Sunday. And so this is a really good time where people are going to stop and think about that ban and the consequences of that ban. So it seems like a right opportunity to actually stop in Scotland and say, well, what do we actually know about our history of the women's game? and What else do we still need to do?
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, what more research does need to be done? If I suppose I'm guessing that quite a lot, then if we've just discovered this inspirational team that have been forgotten for decades, then we do still have a bit of work to be done to, to fill in those gaps.
1: Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a significant amount we still don't know, or we still don't understand. We have fragments of um, the picture, but we don't have, you know, the full puzzle is not in place. And um, so I think in, in two respects, I think, you know, from a national point of view, there's lots of things we still need to find out about. And I'm working on a kind of wider project at the moment, looking at the, the growth and development of women's football from kind of 1880 up to 1939, of which obviously the Rutherglen story is part. I know there are other colleagues working on the later period as well, so, for example, Karen Grumwell at Sterling is working on the post-Second World War period to explore that and find out how we came about to sort of lift the ban and recognise women's football in Scotland. I think on a kind of personal level, on a family level, there's also a need to do it as well, because what's come out of the Rutherglen research is that many of these women who played, their families had no clue they played football and so that's actually been a really wonderful aspect of it is making connections with those families being able to show them you know newspaper clippings about their granny or their auntie or whoever and kind of giving them a bit of, of them back that they really didn't know about and that really has been um, inspirational
0: of course because the team was captained by Sadie Smith and she is the grandmother of singer songwriter Eddie Reader that must have been brilliant to involve uh, someone with the profile of Eddie Reader involved in this project
1: yeah that's been really exciting actually being able to, to sort of piece that story together and you know Eddie said herself that she didn't she didn't really know a great deal about it she's she heard rumours in the family and she said that her uncle had said at one point when he was a little boy he was playing football and somebody hung over a wall and said oh you're good but you're not as good as your mum and, <laughs> and that comment made just didn't really make any sense because it wasn't something that Sadie ever talked about she never explained that she played football and that she played it so well I mean Sadie was exceptional. She was compared to Alan Morton, who, for those of you listening that don't know, he was an inter- Scottish international player in the interwar period, played for Rangers, you know, so he was the pinnacle of his game and she's been compared in newspaper reports to him. So she's like the equivalent of Henrik Larsson, if you like, you know, in this period. You know, she's really, really skilled. She's a really good team player. She's not only scoring goals, but she's setting up opportunities for her teammates as well. So a good all-rounder. And again you know that's just something that has been overlooked so it, it was wonderful to meet eddie and show her those clippings and explain some of the story that we've been able to piece together but also to hear her side of it and hear a bit more about what sadie was really like what her personality was like and her family and just to hear the reactions when she then went back and was able to tell her family that story so that that's been really wonderful and the same with you know some of the other players are being able to make contact with their families as well and just the kind of the, the joy at finding these stories the,
0: my perception of women's football is it has come such a long way i mean even over the last five years like the, the growth of the game has been huge it's there's a lot more mainstream coverage the national team are now playing at hampton richard you mentioned that you've been working since the stadium was redeveloped in 1999 for the, the scottish football museum how do you think the game has
2: developed over that period i, I think in terms of the, the the kind of development of women's football over the last kind of even 20 30 years it's incredible just uh the transformation. I think you said there, Craig. Over the last five years, you know, it seems to have, have come to a new a new level. Uh, I joined the museum. I joined Scottish football really uh, through the museum in 1999, and that was only one year after the, the Scottish FA taking charge of the women's national team. Uh, the Scottish women's football um, had really heroically taken on that challenge—a very difficult challenge to to, to to manage the national team and the fundraising that's required to put you know a, an international team out onto the pitch. But the, the Scottish FA taking kind of ownership over the women's national team, uh, you started to really see then the, the transformation over a period of time, and we're now really seeing the, the the kind of great results over the last kind of five years or so. Um, so so that it's incredible in my time at Hampden Park just how the women's football and girls' football was really started to flourish. Uh, I still think there's a way to go with it. I think you know we're not at the ceiling just yet. We, we want to push on certainly. But, but certainly it, it's a great time to be celebrating women's football and, and this exhibition really tells everybody actually that there's, there's pioneers, there's giants, you know, that we're standing on the shoulders on when it comes to the women's game, you know, but there were pioneers who were largely forgotten and thanks to Stephen and Fiona, we're now really starting to understand their story as well.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your role with the museum. Um, what's it you actually do there? What's, what's, a, what's, a day in, in,
2: what's a day in the life of Richard McBreathey like, for, for want of a better question? It, it can be it can be quite different uh, to be honest i have curatorial responsibilities so looking after the obviously the museum the collections you know that's a big asset to my job the exhibitions working this is one of the best ones i've been working on for a good while to be fair but you know working on exhibitions as well we're looking next year to huge milestones Scottish football first international world's first international is 150 years old Uh, in November 2022. The Scottish FA then turned 150 years old a a few months later. 600 years of Scottish football in 2024 officially, the first act of parliament uh, in 1424, um, which recognised football but tried to ban it. So, there's all these huge things coming up. Um, so, that's going to be quite exciting working with the Scottish FA and other partners to, to make sure we get the funding in place to, to properly mark these, these huge occasions. Another part of my job is uh, we've got a national reminiscence programme, Football Memories, for people mm. with dementia, but also people who may be living in social isolation. So that, that's a big aspect of my job now and, and you can really see the difference that can happen when it comes to just the, the kind of impact that, that, that his heritage and historic collections can have, you know, an, an old image of a football player or of a football stadium from 50 years ago to someone living with dementia who can tell you how they got to the meeting that day. And you see that image of that player and it's a memory trigger. It just sparks a memory and it's incredible. You bring them back into the room. So it's, that's actually changed that quite a lot the way we think culturally now as a museum. We can see the impact that football has in helping people. And quite often football gets a bad, you know, I, I get a bad brief at times with, with various things. But there's a lot of really positive messages that come out of football. And certainly the Football Memories Programme from the museum's perspective is a, it's a huge aspect of what we do now. Sound like you really enjoy your job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, same. Sometimes you have to pinch yourself. Don't be wrong, you've got audits of the museum collections, which are like anything else, can be quite boring and things like that, but you do have an opportunity every so often really to kind of. Um, and sometimes, as well, it's the heritage, you know, roundabout is, you know, what, for me, the, the Scottish Cup's 150. Uh, the tournament in 2023. The trophy itself is the oldest existing trophy worldwide for association football. You know, walk past it every day. It leaves the museum once every year for cup final day, it's still handed over to the winning team. And we then have to wait outside the winning dressing room uh, for about 25 minutes to then get it back, and a replica then leaves. But we do that because it's the oldest in world football. And but sometimes you need someone from outside Scotland to come into the museum and tap you in the shoulder and just remind you actually you've got an incredible story to tell and what's exciting for me with this exhibition and the work that Fiona and Steve have been doing is we're properly now going to represent the whole of Scottish football because that story deserves to be in the museum, we simply didn't know about it before we have inherited the collection of the Scottish Football Association, we have all that knowledge from the archives and the minutes that, that we have about the knowledge of Scottish football, but they discriminated sadly against women's football. We therefore had very little to, to no information on women's football historically. So that's why this work is vital, not just in producing an exhibition, but creating that knowledge that we need in the museum to properly do justice to Scottish football as a whole.
0: And a similar question to yourself, Fiona, this must have been a lot of fun to work on, to find this unheralded story that that kind of almost falls into your lap and get the chance to explore something that you didn't know anything about before.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. It's a kind of, um, it's, it's a bit like Richard described, a pinch me moment. You know, you kind of, you go through your research career hoping that you're going to find something that is, you know, Totally unique that nobody else has found before, and and I certainly feel a little bit like that with this story that you know so few people knew about it before, and Steve and I have been able to take that story even further, and now to have been given this wonderful platform through our work with the museum just to celebrate that story and to take it further out into Scotland when it when the exhibition tours, is just such a wonderful opportunity, and it's exactly why I do what I do because I'm passionate about celebrating these forgotten stories and shining a light on these women's stories so that people know about them, understand them, and can celebrate them appropriately. So this is just fantastic.
0: So the exhibition launched on Friday the 3rd of December. If anyone wants to get along, how do they How do they get involved with it?
1: You can book online if you go onto the website for the museum. Um, you can book your tickets there because there are sort of Covid rules in place, so you need to book a ticket before you go. And then after six months, so around about May time, it will start to tour around Scotland and will probably, I would imagine, have a list of venues, maybe on the, the museum website, so you can see where you can catch it locally. But hopefully it will be coming to somewhere near you if you can't make it to the museum. Excellent.
0: You should definitely make it along the museum itself, even without the set exhibition, the museum itself. So- very very worthwhile to go to if you've got an interest in Scottish football but I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the discussion there I'm looking forward to go down and seeing the exhibition myself but Fiona it was brilliant on in, in the show and I look forward to catching up with you again at some point soon
1: thanks very much
0: and Richard brilliant to talk to you thank you very much for your time today fantastic thanks Greg I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into this episode and I hope to see you again next time when we'll be having a chat with another member of the wonderful GCU community. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast to get every episode sent straight to your listening device. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all reputable retailers. Also, give us a decent review if you have the time. Until the next time, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast.